This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Narration by Jordan Wilson. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks to download this book in PDF format. Conspiracy in Philadelphia, Origins of the United States Constitution by Dr. Gary North. Publisher, Dominion Educational Ministries, Harrisonburg, Virginia. This book is dedicated to the members, living and dead, of Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, who for over two centuries have smelled a rat in Philadelphia. Chapter 2. Renewed Covenant or Broken Covenant? Matthew chapter 7 verse 2. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Quote R.J. Rushduni, 1983. In every country where an oath of office is required, as is required in the United States by the Constitution, the oath has reference to swearing by Almighty God to abide His covenant, invoking the cursings and blessings of God for obedience and disobedience. Quote, Article 4, Clause 3, U.S. Constitution. The senators and representatives before mentioned, and members of the several state legislatures, and all the executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution, but no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. The fourth point of the biblical covenant model relates to the oath and the sanctions attached to it. The individual swears an oath to God, who in turn promises to bless the individual for covenantal faithfulness or curse him for, the, for disobedience. It is the cursing aspect of an oath that establishes it as a covenant oath, as distinguished from a mere contract, for the curses establish it as a self-meledictory oath. It is this oath that ratifies the covenantal bond between the sovereign and the subordinate. God, the covenantal sovereign, rules in history through a covenant-bound trio of hierarchies, church, state, and family. The head of each covenantal organization is required to take an oath before God to preserve and defend the organization and its members. Those beneath the oath-taker in the hierarchy are under the covenant law order, through the oath-taking representative agent. Until she says, I do, the woman is not a wife. Once she does, she is legally bound to God through her husband and to her husband under God. Similarly, when a citizen agrees to remain under the jurisdiction of the civil government, he has implicitly taken an oath to defend it and obey its authorized representatives. The same is true in a church. The oath invokes negative covenant sanctions. Once invoked, there is no escape from its stipulations. Quote, and Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Exodus 19, verses 7 and 8. He was the representative agent. When they promised to obey, they took an oath for themselves and their posterity. The oath has continuity over generations, so do its stipulations. Only the sovereign who establishes the oath can change the stipulations or the oath. The ability to change the stipulations or the oath is therefore a mark of ultimate sovereignty. With this in mind, we begin our discussion of the U.S. Constitution as a covenant document. A Civil Covenant The U.S. Constitution reveals its covenant structure in its five divisions. Division 1, Sovereignty, is the preamble. Division 2, Law, 
is legislation. Division three, sanctions, is enforcement. Division four, hierarchy, is appeals. Division five, succession, is amendments. The five points do not appear in the same order that they do in the biblical covenant model, but all five are present. In this sense, the Constitution is surely a covenant document, one that is far more visibly covenantal in structure than is the case in other constitutions. The Constitution begins with a declaration of sovereignty, point one of the covenant model, we the people of the United States, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. This preamble could not be clearer. The framers presented the document for ratification in such a form that the entire population acting corporately through the states would gain formal credit for the document. Warren Burger, who served as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, said that these are the document's most important words. As he wrote to me when I questioned him about the meaning of his statement, quote, they are the key words conceptually, end quote. The suzerain of this covenant is the people. We have here an echo of classical Roman political philosophy enunciated by Cicero, who was one of the favorites of the framers. Vox populi, vox dot dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Professor Clark is correct. Vox populi, vox dei is a divine right slogan. The divine right doctrine teaches that no earthly appeal beyond the specified sovereign agent or agency is legitimate. Nothing lawfully separates the authority of the divine right agency from God. If there is no personal God in the system, then this agency takes the place of God in society. This phrase announces in principle the genius of the people. We should not forget that genius in pre-imperial Rome meant the divinity of the city of Rome and its people. In the Dea Roma cult, and later became an attribute of the emperor's divinity. This raises an inescapable problem for politics. Who speaks for the sovereign? In no covenantal system does God speak continually and directly to those under the authority of the covenant. The debate in the West until the 20th century was between those who defended the king or executive branch and those who defended the legislature. It was the question of the enforcer versus the declarer. As I will show later in this chapter, in 20th century America, the locus of final earthly sovereignty shifted to the judicial branch of the, of the U.S. government. The U.S. Supreme Court became the sovereign's exclusive voice, its sole authorized interpreter. People, King, and Parliament We the people can be interpreted in a more Protestant fashion. The anti-monarchical Vindicae Contra Tyrannis by Lucius Junius Brutus, published in 1517, offered a biblical and covenantal justification for political rebellion. It was translated into English and published in the year following the Glorious Revolution of 1688. This look this book became a familiar reference during the American Revelation. It asserted the sovereignty of the people above the sovereignty of kings. One of the sections of the third questions announces, quote, the whole body of the people is above the king, end quote. So common were these ideas among Protestants in the late 16th century that even Richard Hooker appealed to the Vindicae in his Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, 1594, in his defense of the divine right of the kings of England. He said that the representatives of the people's majesty crown the king. The king rules by God through the people. He rules by law, meaning natural law, which is the same as God's revealed law in the Bible. Hooker began his study with a discussion of natural law, which remained the hypothetical law structure that supposedly serves autonomous man as a legitimate substitute for biblical law. 
Within half a decade after the death of Hooker, James I came to the throne. A pagan Renaissance monarch to the core, James I asserted the divine right of kings far more forcefully than Hooker had. He viewed kingship as directly under God, without any reference to the sovereignty of the people. Quote, it is thesmi and blasphemic to dispute what God can do. So it is presumption and high contempt in a subject to dispute what a king can do. End quote. This arrogance did not go without a challenge. In a document published by the House of Commons in 1604, an apology, the argument appears that the rights of Englishmen are as old as the monarchy, especially property rights. Quote, the voice of the people is said to be as the voice of God, end quote. In response, James suspended commons. The theoretical and institutional battle between Stuart kings and parliament began. It ended only with the revolution of 1688. In the Puritan Revolution of the 1640s, Parliament conducted its revolt against James I's son, Charles I, in the name of both God and the people. Obviously, the Jacobite concept of the divine right of kings had to be jettisoned. But jettisoned in the name of what earthly agent? The divine right doctrine always meant that the named agent would be the final earthly court of appeal. The person of the king had been that sole agent Charles I's father had maintained. Not so, said Parliament, they reasserted the older Protestant view of the sovereignty of God as delegated to all civil governments through the people. Nevertheless, during the Restoration period from 1660 through 1688, the view of James I resurfaced. In a 1681 address to Charles II by the University of Cambridge, we read, quote, We will still believe and maintain that our kings derive not their title from the people, but from God that to him only they are accountable, that it belongs not to subjects either to create or censure, but to honor and obey their sovereign, who comes to be so by a fundamental hereditary right of succession, which no religion, no law, no fault of forfeiture can alter or diminish. End of quote. The triumph of Parliament. These sediments did not last long. Parliament overthrew Charles II's brother James II in 1688. Nevertheless, the problem of sovereignty still remained. Someone must speak for the people deity in the people's corporate political capacity. Parliament asserted that Parliament's sovereignty is unbounded. In this, political theorists were followed by Sir Edward Coke, Cook, who had drawn James I's ire for his defense of the absolute parliamentary sovereignty. This view of parliamentary sovereignty was carried down in William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England of 1765 to the era immediately preceding the American Revolution. As we have seen in Chapter 1, Blackstone was a defender of natural law, which he formally equated with God's law. He wrote, quote, This law of nature being coeval with mankind and dictated by God himself is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe and all countries and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. End quote. Yet he also defended the absolute sovereignty of Parliament, indicating that he believed that Parliament always and inevitably adhered to the dictates of natural law. Blackstone began his defense of parliamentary sovereignty by citing Cook. Sir Edward Cook says, The power and jurisdiction of Parliament is so transcendent and absolute that it cannot be confined, either for causes and persons, within any bounds. Blackstone continued in this vein. It can, in short, do everything that is not naturally impossible, and therefore some have not scrupled to call its power by a figure rather too bold, the omnipotence of Parliament. True it is that what the Parliament doth no authority on earth can undo. Blackstone was wrong. Beginning a decade later, the American colonies undid a lot of what Parliament had done. 
the American Revolution was a revolt against Blackstone's view of parliamentary sovereignty. This revolt was conducted after 1774 in the name of the legitimate legislative sovereignty of the colonial parliaments, the state assemblies. During the Revolutionary War, the state legislatures transferred specified portions of their own limited sovereignty to Congress. Late in the war, they transferred limited sovereignty again to the central government in the Articles of Confederation. This transfer was then challenged by the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and by the ratification of the U.S. Constitution in 1788. But the fundamental intellectual question of the Revolution, as historian Bernard Balin has, has maintained, was the question of sovereignty. Quote, Representation and consent, constitution and rights, these were basic problems, consideration of which led to shifts in thought that helped shape the character of American radicalism. But of all the intellectual problems the colonists faced, one was absolutely crucial. In the last analysis, it was over this issue that the revolution was fought. End of quote. That issue was sovereignty. The solution to this intellectual problem was settled in a preliminary way in 1788 with the ratification of the Constitution. It was settled more decisively on the battlefields of 1861 through 1865, but it is still not settled in the United States. It will not be settled historically in any nation until the whole world formally affirms the crown rights of King Jesus. I argue in this book that the Articles of Confederation served as a national halfway civil covenant. This chapter is about the Constitution, but the Constitution was the covenantal successor of the Articles. The Articles did not explicitly deny that the God of the Bible is Lord over all governments, nor did they affirm it. Several of the state constitutions did affirm this. Thus, the national civil government was a covenantal mixture. For the national government prior to 1788 was a confederation, not a unitary state. It was a halfway covenant. As we shall see, the U.S. Constitution is far more consistent. What the Articles did not positively affirm, the Constitution positively denies. The legitimacy of religious test oaths as a screening device for officers of the national civil government. It is this shift that marks the transition from the older Trinitarian state covenants to what became, over decades, apostate state covenants. This transition at the national level did not occur overnight. There was an intermediary step, the Articles of Confederation. Yet, when the next to the last step was taken, the Constitutional Convention, those who took it ignored the original bylaws of the Articles and appealed forward to the people. The framers publicly ignored the Declaration of Independence, which had formally incorporated the national government, for they were interested in upholding the myth of the sovereign people, and the Declaration had repeatedly mentioned God. Thus, the Declaration and the Articles both disappeared from the American judicial tradition and its system of legal precedence, and the Articles disappeared from American political thought. Two things were retained, however, the national name established by the Articles, the United States of America, and the seal of the nation that had been formally incorporated as July 4th, 1776. The Articles of Confederation What was wrong with the Articles? According to Madison and the critics, it was the absence of sanctions. There was no power to tax and compel payment. Also, there was no executive who could enforce sanctions. In his letter to George Washington, April 16, 1787, Madison insisted, quote, A national executive must also be provided. In like the manner, the right of coercion should be expressly declared, end quote. In that same month, a month before the convening of the convention, Madison had noted his objections to the articles in his unpublished, quote, vices of the political system of the United States, end quote. He included this momentous criticism, quote, 
A sanction is essential to the idea of law, as coercion is to that of government. The federal system being destitute of both wants the great vital principles of a political constitution. Under the form of such a constitution, it is in fact nothing more than a treaty of amity, of commerce, and of alliance between independent and sovereign states, end quote. He wanted more than a treaty. He wanted a national government. But this, as he knew, had been achieved in the past only through an agreement regarding a common god that sanctioned the creation of civil government. Without such a god to sanction the civil government, the government could not legitimately impose sanctions on those under its jurisdiction. The sanction on the people could only be justified in terms of the ultimate sanctioning power of the agreed-upon god of the covenant. What Madison and the framers proposed was a revolutionary break from the history of mankind's governments, with only one glaring exception, the state of Rhode Island the number one obstructionist state that had produced the paralysis of the confederation. But instead of abandoning the covenantal legacy of Rhode Island, the framers adopted it as the judicial foundation of the proposed national government. The leaven of neutrality would now leaven the whole lump. The Structure of National Authority The Constitution officially divides national judicial spokesmanship into three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. Each of these is a separate judicial sphere. Each has its own section in the document itself. For a law, piece of legislation, to be binding, all three branches must agree. Originally, this was not clear to the framers. They believed that the agreement of the executive and the legislature would be sufficient. They divided the legislative branch into two sections, House of Representatives and Senate. Very little was said of the judicial branch. It was assumed that it would be by far the weakest of the three. Alexander, Hamil Alexander Hamilton went so far as to say that the judiciary is beyond comparison the weakest of the three departments of power, and assured his readers that it can never attack with success either of the other two, and that all possible care is requisite to enable it to defend itself against their attacks. The framers did not recognize that he who interprets the law authoritatively is in fact the true voice of sovereign majesty. They also did not fully understand that the implicitly vast powers of political centralization that the Constitution created on a national level would lead to the creation of a new hierarchy. The federal national govern government would steadily swallow up subordinate jurisdictions. Why? Because in any covenant there must be a hierarchy, and the pinnacle of that hierarchy is the agent who possesses the authority to announce the law and therefore sanctify the law's sanctions. So, there was an initial confusion over hierarchy and representation, point two of the biblical covenant model. This had been the greatest political debate immediately prior to the revolution. Which body had legitimate legislative sovereignty in the colonies? The English Parliament or the colonial legislatures? This was also the heart of the political debate over the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution. The voters, as represented by state ratifying conventions in 1788, had insisted on retaining numerous powers in the states. Any power not expressly transferred to the central government automatically resides in the states, Amendment 10. Thus the debate became one of states' rights versus national power. John Adams, Architect the major intellectual influence in the actual structuring of the U.S. Constitution was probably John Adams rather than Madison. In December of 1787, the final volume appeared of Adams' famous three-volume study of the state constitutions, A Defense of the Constitutions of the Government of the United States. The first volume had appeared while the convention was assembling. 
This study was a defense of the idea of the separation of powers, a theme that he had written about earlier. Adams had been the primary architect of the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution. Thus, his blunt speaking was both representative of the new worldview and authoritative nationally. He viewed their earlier constitution writing actions as unique in history, the creation of a republic founded on the sovereignty of the people, with only a brief peripheral mention of Christianity. Notice carefully his reference to Vitruvius, the Roman architect. This fascination with Vitruvius had been basic to European humanism since the Renaissance. Quote, it was the general opinion of ancient nations that the divinity alone was adequate to the important office of giving laws to men. The United States of America have exhibited perhaps the first example of governments erected on the simple principles of nature, and if men are now sufficiently enlightened to disabuse themselves of artifice, imposture, hypocrisy, and superstition, they will consider this event as an era in their history. It will never be pretended that any persons employed in that service had interviews with the gods or in any degree under the inspiration of heaven more than those at work upon ships or houses or laboring in merchandise or agriculture. It will forever be acknowledged that these governments were contrived merely by the use of reason and the senses. Neither the people nor their conventions, committees, or subcommittees considered legis legislation in any other light than as ordinary arts and sciences, only more important. Called without expectation and compelled with previous inclination, though undoubtedly at the best period of time both for England and America, suddenly to erect new systems of laws for their future government. They adopted the method of a wise architect in erecting a new palace for the residence of his sovereign. They determined to consult Vitruvius Palladio and all other writers of reputation in the art to examine the most celebrated buildings, whether they remain entire or in ruins, to compare these with the principles of writers, and to inquire how far both the theories and models were founded in nature or created by fancy. Thirteen governments thus founded on the national authority of the people alone, without a pretense of miracle or mystery. End quote. Adam's fascination with the example of Vitruvius, who had become a magician in the writings of Renaissance Neoplatonists, is ignored by modern historians. Adams was not speaking of building physical structures. He was speaking of constructing civil governments. He used the analogy of looking at the records of ancient buildings when he really meant a close examination of ancient constitutions. He saw himself as the chief architect of new civil governments for a new age. Although he was in England at the time, the great architectural work was in progress in Philadelphia when his first volume appeared. Adams knew that it would be when he was writing it. Adams briefly mentioned Christianity, quote, The experiment is made and has completely succeeded. It can no longer be called in question whether authority and magistrates and obedience of citizens can be grounded on reason, morality, and the Christian religion without the monkery of priests or the knavery of politicians, end quote. In short, a state constitution can be architecturally constructed without benefit of clergy or elected politicians. This is exactly what the delegates at Philadelphia intended to prove at the national level. The architects were about to rebuild the structure of American government on a foundation that would have been unrecognizable to the founding fathers of the 17th century, with one exception, Roger Williams, before the Constitution. The framers knew that religious test oaths were required for testifying in local and state courts. The word test in both cases, test oath and testify, refer back to the biblical language of the covenant, i.e. testament. It refers judicially to a witness who testifies in a court. 
the framers knew that religious oaths were sometimes required for exercising the franchise in state elections, but they made it clear, federal jurisdiction is to be governed by another covenant, and therefore by another god. It is therefore a rival system of hierarchy. It is not a complementary system of courts. It is a rival system, for an oath to the God of the Bible is prohibited by law in one of these hierarchies. To serve in Congress under the Articles, a man had to be appointed by his state legislature. He could be recalled at any time. He could serve in only three years out of every six. He was under public scrutiny continually. In order to exercise the authority entrusted to him by his state legislature, he had to take an oath. These oaths in most states were both political and religious. The officer of the state had to swear allegiance to the state constitution and also allegiance to God. Consider Delaware's required oath. Quote, Article 22. Every person who shall be chosen a member of either house or appointed to any office or place of trust before taking his seat or entering upon the execution of his office shall take the following oath or affirmation if conscientiously scrupulous of taking an oath to wit. IAB will bear true allegiance to the Delaware state, submit to its constitution and laws, and do not act wittingly whereby the freedom thereof may be prejudiced. And also make and, and subscribe the following declaration, to wit, IAB do profess faith in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ his only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore, and I do acknowledge the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. And all officers shall take an oath of office. End quote. The Constitution of Vermont in, 17, in 1777 was not much different. Quote, Section 4. A quorum of the House of Representatives shall consist of two-thirds of the whole number of members elected and having met and chosen their speaker, shall each of them, before they proceed to business, take and subscribe as well the oath of fidelity and allegiance herein after directed as the following oath or affirmation. Vis-a-vis, quote, I do solemnly swear by the ever-living God, or I do solemnly affirm in the presence of Almighty God, that as a member of this assembly, I will not propose or assent to any bill, vote, or resolution, which shall appear to me injurious to the people, nor do or consent to any act or anything whatever, that shall have a tendency to lessen or abridge their rights and privileges, as declared in the Constitution of this state." but will in all things conduct myself as a faithful, honest representative and guardian of the people, according to the best of my judgment and abilities. And each member, before he takes his seat, shall make and subscribe the following declaration vis-a-vis. I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and punisher of the wicked, and I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration and own and profess the Protestant religion. And no further or other religious tests shall ever hereafter be required of any civil officer or magistrate in this state. End quote. Notice the language. No further or other religious tests shall ever be required. There could be only one kind of oath, to the Trinitarian God of the Bible. This made Trinitarianism the permanent judicial foundation of the state. In order to break this Trinitarian monopoly, the framers had to undermine the state oaths. A New Covenant Oath I began this chapter with Article 6, Clause 3 of the Constitution, which prohibits religious oaths as a requirement for holding federal office. This is not one of the better-known sections of the Constitution. It is seldom discussed by historians. Typical is Saul K. Padover's clause-by-clause recapitulation of the debates at the convention. 
When he comes to Article 6, he does not even mention Section 3. He summarizes only the debate over the oath of allegiance to the Constitution. Even more amazing is the near silence of Edwin S. Corwin, acknowledged as the 20th century master of the Constitution, one brief, undistinguished paragraph out of 10 pages devoted to Article 6. Everyone today assumes automatically that no religious test should be administered as a requirement for holding public office. Everyone also assumes that office holders should swear allegiance to the Constitution. Yet, in 1787, the reverse was true. There was considerable debate at the Constitutional Convention regarding the propriety of requiring state office holders to swear allegiance to the Constitution. Furthermore, the states had religious tests of various kinds for office holders. A great reversal in the legal structure of the nation took place when the Constitution was ratified, and this is revealed by the alteration of the oaths required to hold representative hierarchical office. A great change in public thinking also took place subsequent to ratification. The ratification of the Constitution was, in fact, simultaneously a covenant-breaking and covenant-making act. As with all covenant acts, this one involved the acknowledgement of legitimacy. When the voters sent the first representatives to Congress in Philadelphia in 1789, the legitimacy of the new government was secured. The theological and judicial terms of the new covenant began to be emanated at the state level until the resistance of the South called a halt to this process. The Civil War and the 14th Amendment revived it. Article 6, Clause 3 established the third covenantal pillar of what is one of the three keys to a proper understanding of the nature of the constitutional covenant. The first pillar is the locus of authorizing sovereignty, the people. This is the designated creator of the covenant. This appears as the Constitution's preamble. The second pillar is the nature of political participation, the authorizing electorate. Who is a citizen? This establishes the nature of, and legal access to, formal acts of covenant renewal in a republican system of government. This was not definitively settled until the passage of the 14th Amendment in 1868. The third pillar is the nature of public oaths by federal officers. This is the Authorized Representatives Act of Formal Covenant Affirmation and subordination to the terms of the covenant. An officer is the person who is charged with the assignment of enforcing the covenant sanctions, point four of the biblical covenant model. He must therefore swear allegiance to the covenant, subordination, part two, and also to its stipulations, point three. He agrees to obey the law. In the biblical covenant, this agent must also swear allegiance to the sovereign himself, God. This last requirement is dealt with in Article 6. Article 6 represents the Constitution's definitive break with the previous American political tradition except Rhode Island's, and with all previous civil covenants except Rhode Island's. Quote, The senators and representatives before mentioned, and the members of the several state legislatures, and all the executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution, But no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. The basic principle of any covenant is that all those under the covenant's positive sanctions are to be governed by its statutes and provisions. The public mark of being under the sovereign is the taking of an oath. Public officers must take the oath verbally. They are to enforce the law of the covenant by imposing the sanctions of the covenant. If they do not swear to uphold it, they are not legally entitled to define, interpret, or enforce its sanctions. State officers have to swear allegiance to the Constitution. The final prohibition by the federal government on the states with regard to religious test oaths came in 1961. 
The weak link in the oath system was the U.S. Senate. A senator was an indirectly appointed officer. The state legislatures elected senators. Thus, a preliminary screening based on a religious test oath was still likely because the legislatures presumably would elect men from their own ranks. In some states, senators would have already taken such an oath. This problem did not definitively end until 1913, the year the Constitution was amended to require the direct election of senators. That was also the year of the supposed ratification of the 16th Amendment, the income tax, which was ratified as illegally as the 14th Amendment was. The other major national jurisdiction judicial event of 1913 was the passage of the Federal Reserve Act, which created the nation's quasi-private central bank, the Convention's Judicial Revolution. At the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Edmund Rudolph defended the, nation, the National Oath of Allegiance. He said that the officers of the states were already bound by oath to the states. To preserve a due impartiality, they ought to be equally bound by the national government. The national government needs every support we can give it, he said. He said, the executive and judiciary of the states, notwithstanding, their national independence on the state legislatures are in fact so dependent on them that unless they be brought under some tie to the national system, they will always lean too much to the state systems whenever a contest arises between the two, end quote. He added this comment as debate progressed. Quote, we are erecting a supreme national government. Ought it not be supported? And can we give it too many sinews? End quote. Hamilton and Rousseau. It is to Hamilton's explanation on the need for this loyalty oath that we must turn in order to see what was really involved. He was the most eloquent defender of the strongest possible national government. In Federalist 27, he stated plainly what was being done by means of this required oath. A new judicial relationship was being created by the Constitution, a direct covenant between the new national civil government with the individual citizen without any intermediary civil government. This alteration is generally regarded by legal theorists as the most important single innovation that the Constitution imposed. They are wrong. The prohibition of religious test oaths was its most innovative breakthrough, one nation under the God of the people, indivisible, with a civil war to prove it. The lack of intermediate governments, social and civil, between the individual and the national government was the heart of Rousseau's concept of the general will, meaning the heart of Rousseau's totalitarianism, as Robert Nisbet and many other scholars have argued. Colonial political and social traditions were Christian, decentralist, and institutionally pluralist, though not ethically and confessionally pluralist. The Constitution would not have been proposed or debated publicly by the existing Congress. The Philadelphia conspirators fully understood this. They were ready to abandon the colonial Christian tr tradition of decentralized power. Hamilton made it clear that the Constitution, when ratified, would take a major step forward in the direction of Rousseau's general will ideal of weakening intermediary civil governments. He wrote, quote, The plan reported by the convention, by extending the authority of the federal head to the individual citizens of the, United of the several states, will enable the government to employ the ordinary magistracy of each execution of its laws. It is easy to perceive that this will tend to destroy in the common apprehension all distinction between the sources from which they might proceed, and will give the federal government the same advantage for securing a due obedience to its authority, which is enjoyed by the government of each state, in addition to the influence on public opinion, which will result from the important consideration of having its power to call 
its assistance and support the resources of the whole union. Its merits particular, it merits particular attention in this place that the laws of the Confederacy as to the enumerated and legitimate, legitimate objects of its jurisdiction will become the supreme law of the land to the observance of which all officers legislative, executive, and judicial in each state will be bound by the sanctity of an oath. Thus, the legislature's court and magistrates of the respective members will be incorporated into the operations of the national government as far as its just and constitutional authority extends and will be rendered auxiliary to the enforcement of its laws. End quote. Hamilton did not consider the loyalty oath irrelevant. He understood very well the important role it would play judicially and also in public opinion. Objections to this national national loyalty oath were raised at the convention. James Wilson of Pennsylvania said, quote, A good government did not need them, and a bad one could not or ought not to be supported. End quote. His objection was voted down. The delegates to the convention knew the importance of oaths, public and secret. Religious tests. Now we come to the part of the Article 6's provisions on a religious loyalty oath. That meant, in the context of the required state oaths, a Christian loyalty oath. At this point, the arguments for and against oaths were revised. There is no need for such an oath, most of the convention's delegates concluded. Echoing Wilson's comments on the uselessness of a federal oath, Madison later wrote to Edmund Pendleton, quote, Is not a religious test as far as it is necessary or, or would be operate involved in the oath itself? If the person swearing believes in the supreme being who is invoked and in the penal consequences of offending him either in this or a future world or both he will be under the same restraint from perjury as if he had previously subscribed to a test requiring this belief if the person in question be an unbeliever in these points and would notwithstanding take an oath a previous test could have no effect he would subscribe to it as he would take the oath without any principle that could be affected by either in short a believer already believes. A liar will subscribe, so why bother with an oath? <clears throat> this argument was used by other defenders of the abolition of a religious test oath. But the requirement misses a key point. What about the honest deists and Unitarians who would not want to betray their principles by taking a false oath to a Trinitarian God? A Christian oath would bar them from serving as covenantal agents of the ultimate sovereign, the God of the Bible. By removing the requirement of the oath, the convention's delegates were in fact opening up the door to federal office holding that would otherwise be closed to honest non-Christians, a point observed by some of the defenders of the removal of the religious test. It would also open up offices of authority to men who had taken other binding oaths that were hostile to Christianity, men who had taken these rival oaths in good faith. That possibility was never openly discussed, but it was a possibility which lay silently in the background of the closed convention in Philadelphia. By closing the literal doors in Philadelphia, the delegates were opening the judicial door to a new group of officials. They were therefore closing the judicial door to the original authorizing sovereign agent under whom almost all officials had been serving from the very beginning of the country. The proposal was submitted by Charles Pickney of South Carolina. After debate, it was accepted overwhelmingly. North Carolina opposed it. Maryland was divided. <coughs> Those delegates at the ratifying conventions who were hostile to Article 6, Clause 3, suspected what might happen. <clears throat> Quote, if there be no religious test required, pagans, deists, and Mahatmatans might obtain offices among us, and that the senators and representatives might all be pagans. End quote. A prophetic voice indeed, 
It was not heated, but this objection was more distinctively political and practical. The more important issue was covenantal, but the opponents of the Constitution did not fully understand this. Surely today's textbook commentators do not. The officers of the U.S. government are not to be subjected to a religious test oath for office holding. We must understand what this means. It means that civil officers are not under an oath to the God of the Bible. It means that in the exercise of their various offices, civil magistrates are bound by an oath to a different God. That God is the American people, considered as an autonomous sovereign who possesses original and final earthly jurisdiction. This view of the sovereign people is radically different from anything that had been formally stated or publicly assumed by previous Christian political philosophers. The people were no longer acting as God's delegated judicial agents, but as their own agent. This same view of political sovereignty undergirded Rousseau's political theory and also the various constitutions of the French Revolution. The ratification of the U.S. Constitution was therefore a formal covenantal step toward the left-wing enlightenment and away from the halfway covenant political philosophy of Christianity combined with right-wing Scottish Enlightenment rationalism. It would take the victory of Darwinianism after 1859 and the victory of the North in the Civil War in 1865 and the aftermath, Reconstruction, to make clear the definitive nature of this judicial step towards Rousseau's unholy commonwealth. The 14th Amendment in 1868 brought the federal government's religious toleration to the states a procedure originally denied to the federal government by the First Amendment, which prohibited Congress from making laws regarding religion. In Cantwell v. Connecticut, 1940, the Supreme Court declared, quote, The First Amendment declares that Congress shall make no laws respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The Fourteenth Amendment has rendered the legislatures of the states as incompetent as Congress to enact such laws. Finally, in, 18, in 1961, the last state religious test oath was declared unconstitutional in Maryland. Justin Black cited the conclusion of Cantwell v. Connecticut to overturn this last vestige of pre-constitutional oath-bound civil covenants, the lowly office of notary public. <clears throat> the heart, mind, and especially soul of the conflict with American political philosophy between the state's rights and federal sovereignty is seen here in Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution. Yet this clause regarding civil oaths is virtually never discussed in detail, or even mentioned in some instances by modern history textbooks. Constitutional law textbooks, or even the, quote, Christian constitutional monographs and collections of old primary source documents. The neutral common ground reasoning of the natural law tradition receives its mark of sovereignty here. Here is the soul of pre-Darwinian humanism. Darwinian Darwinianism destroyed itself and has left historicism, existentialism, relativism, and remnants of Marxism as its evolving spiritual successors. Here is the judicial foundation of the American Civil Liberties Union's protests against all traces of religion in public places. Here is the baptismal font of the U.S. Department of Education's atheism. All that was needed was a centralization of judicial control through the federal national courts and the extension of mandatory federal judicial atheism to the states. Both were provided by the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, Citizenship Without God. The culmination came with the Civil War from 1861 to 1865 and the unconstitutionally ratified 14th Amendment in 1868. It is with the 14th Amendment, as Harvard legal historian Raoul Berger has so conclusively demonstrated, that we find the origins of what he calls government by judiciary 
I agree with Rush Juni's assessment of its impact. Quote, the Canaan and refuge of pilgrims is becoming the house of bondage, end quote. We need to consider the 14th Amendment in relation to citizenship. The first sentence of Section 1 reads, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside, end quote. This amendment was added in 1868 in the aftermath of the Civil War. Why was it considered necessary? Because the Constitution had not previously defined citizen. Citizenship was left to the individual states to define. Freed slaves needed judicial protection, thus they were made citizens under the protection of the law. They had not been protected as citizens prior to the war. This was one reason why the Constitution had been silent regarding citizenship, to avoid a walkout by Southern delegates to the convention taking the oaths of citizenship. American citizens now take this inherently atheistic civil oath. They take it at birth. It is taken implicitly and representatively. They are citizens by birth. This concept, citizenship by physical birth and geography, is crucial in understanding the transformation of the American covenant. It made civil covenant membership dependent on an oath of strictly civil subordination rather than profession of religious faith, ecclesiastical, and civil subordination. In the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 17th century, an adult male became a citizen by formal church covenant. Without formal church membership, he was merely a town resident, not a citizen. This system began to break down almost from the beginning. Becoming a property holder made you eligible to vote in town elections, though not always in colony-wide elections. Steadily, the possession of capital replaced the oath as the basis of political citizenship. Later, the formal development of this principle of civil contract became one of John Locke's intellectual legacies to political thought, if not the major one. Nevertheless, there was always the oath taken in a civil court. God's name was brought into the proceedings. Locke was aware of the binding nature of an oath and also its religious foundations. In his Essay on Toleration, 1685, he specifically exempted the atheist from the civil protection of toleration. Lastly, those are not all to be tolerated who deny the being of God. Promises, covenants, and oaths, which are the bonds of human society, can have no hold upon an atheist. The taking away of God, though, but even in thought, dissolves all. Besides, also, those that by their atheism undermine and destroy all religion can have no pretense of religion whereupon to challenge the privilege of toleration. End quote. The oath to God reminded a citizen of the sovereign who would impose sanctions on courtroom liars. So men were required to swear with one hand on the Bible and the other one raised toward heaven. Presidents still do this when they have the constitutional oath administered to them. This right is not required by law. It is an empty formal right in the eyes of most people, yet rights are never entirely empty. There is always some mysterious element in a right, some degree of foreboding if the pro proper traditional formulas are not observed. The outward shell of the original colonial civil covenants still preserves, just as baptism and the Lord's Supper do in apostate churches. The Triumph of the Federal Judiciary By default, the federal judiciary has triumphed, for it alone speaks the true word of the silent, amorphous sovereign. Professor Berger begins his book on government by judiciary with these words. The 14th Amendment is the case study par excellence of what Justice Harlan described as the Supreme Court's exercise of the amending power, its continuing revision of the Constitution under the guise of interpretation, end quote. 
The Supreme Court or final court of appeal in any covenantal institution provides the day-to-day judicial continuity. Only rarely are there fundamental discontinuous revisions made in this process of judicial continuity. There is no escape from this aspect of temporal continuity. The primary question of covenantal sanctions is this one. Who authorizes the application of the covenant sanctions? The answer? The agency that administers the covenant oath. Therefore, we need to identify the character of the civil oath. The Constitution is clear. Quote, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. End quote. The second sentence of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment has been the wedge by which federal judicial sovereignty has split apart the original constitutional federalism, although this was not fully apparent until the rise of progressivism after 1880. Quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, end quote. Ever since the early 1940s, the Supreme Court has been unwilling to protect private property from all kinds of confiscation and control by local, state, and federal governments. Post-Darwinian liberalism has been victorious over Lockean liberalism. In 1973, the Supreme Court determined that lives in the womb are not under this protection because of a court-invented constitutional guarantee of privacy. Woman and Physician State civil sanctions could no longer be brought against this class of murderers who had successfully conspired to deprive another person of life. Post-Darwinian liberalism won again. Human life can now be legally sacrificed on the altar of convenience. The hope of the framers, to place judicial limits on the worst decisions of the legislature, did not succeed. Although this fact took a century and a half to become clear to everyone, if anything, the Supreme Court, insulated from direct public opinion, proved in 1973 that it was the worst offender as an agent of the formerly sovereign people. A Political Judiciary The procedural limits of the Constitution proved to be no safeguard from the substantive apostasy of the humanists who dominated politics in the 20th century. The Lockean liberals of 1787 designed a system that was neither substantively nor procedurally immune to the Darwinian liberals of the 20th century. Whig liberalism won in 1788, and its spiritual heir is still winning today. Constitutional procedure has revealed itself to be as morally neutral as humanism's ethics, i.e., not at all. It sometimes takes longer for procedure to respond to the shifting moral and political winds, although in the case of the Warren Court, procedure shifted more rapidly than politics did. It was not, after all, the U.S. Congress that forced racial integration of the public schools of Topeka, Kansas, and therefore the nation in 1954. Darwinian jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who later served on the U.S. Supreme Court, began his 1881 lectures on the common law with this observation, quote, The life of the law has not been logic. It has been experience. The felt necessities of the time, the prevalent moral and political theories, intuitions of public policy, avowed or unconscious, even the prejudices which judges share with their fellow men, have had a good deal more to do than the syllogism in determining the rules by which men should be governed, end quote. This was put less academically and more memorably by the fictional Mr. Dooley, humorist Finley Peter Dunn, in the early years of the 20th century, quote, the Supreme Court follows the election returns, end quote. 
The ambivalence of 18th century Scottish moral philosophy regarding the judiciary as a field independent from politics now has been answered. It is not independent from politics. It is an arm of politics. Witherspoon had warned Madison about this, but Madison and his colleagues did not take the brief warning seriously enough. This failure of procedural structure to match the speed of social change has become a familiar theme of liberalism. Clinton Rossiter, known incorrectly as a political conservative, dismisses the Articles of Confederation as an heir of both Madison and Holmes. Quote, Although handicapped in many ways in the battles of rhetoric and political maneuver with the fearful Republicans, the Nationalists had one advantage that, in the long run, and therefore in the end, would prove decisive. They knew, as did many of their opponents, that the prescriptive course of nation-building in America had run beyond the Articles of Confederation to serve national needs. By 1787, the constitutional lag had become too exaggerated for men like Washington and Madison to bear patiently. End quote. Locke's Legacy Life, Liberty, and Property Locke's contractual formula, life, liberty, and property, echoes down through the centuries in the 14th Amendment. Actually, Locke never wrote this famous phrase, although the three categories are found in his second treatise on government, 1690. Edmund Burke did use the phrase in Reflections on the Revolution in France, 1790, but Locke gets credit for it. Jefferson's insertion into the Declaration of Independence, the phrase of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, was an echo of Locke's categories, though deliberately distorted by Jefferson. John Locke, the defender of universal natural rights through universal natural law, substituted the concept of the civil contract or civil compact for the biblical notion of an oath-bound civil covenant. So did Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The rival political philosophies of the two wings of the 18th century Enlightenment, Scottish a pastorii empirical rationalism versus French a priori deductive rationalism, developed out of these two rival conceptions of the civil contract. Locke's compact offered three stated goals that provided legitimacy to any civil contract, life or self-preservation, liberty, and property. Rousseau's theory had none. The general will supposedly speaks through the state, and no one can stay its sovereign hand. The French revolutionaries, especially the Jacobins, picked up the slogan of French Grand Orient Masonry, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, and fused it with Rousseau's general will. Rousseau's political theology was totalitarian, so was the French Revolution. The Two Revolutions one important difference that distinguishes the ideological defense of the American Revolution from that of the French Revolution can be seen in these rival Enlightenment concepts of, of civil contract. Locke's version of the theory had something specific in history that could identify a valid civil compact, its defense of private property. He made this the touchstone of his political theory. Quote, the great and chief end, therefore, of men's uniting into commonwealths and putting themselves under government is the preservation of their property. End quote. The French view of the social contract had no link between the transcendent sovereign will and history, except the voice of the political sovereign. Jefferson hesitated to use Locke's property and substituted pursuit of happiness. It is not clear why he did this. He had personal faith in private property, including the right of owning slaves. He never freed his. His economic thinking seems to have been shaped by Hume's free market thinking and, later, by Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. But when he sought a substitute for the biblical concept of transcendent legitimacy, he turned away from history and adopted undefined, timeless categories, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Perhaps he was merely writing to please the philo- philosophes and intellectuals in France, knowing well their preference for grand slogans devoid of historical content. Or perhaps the reason may have been merely stylistic. There was another factor, one recognized by British political philosopher A.D. Lindsay. Quote, the American limitations on government were largely of Puritan origin and partly designed to secure freedom of the churches. But in France, there was only one church, regarded in the minds of the upholders of the revolution, as an enemy of the state and therefore in their mind an institution to be attacked, not to be secured in its liberties. End quote. In short, it was the ecclesiastical pluralism of competing Trinitarian churches that made possible the Americans' confidence in the possibility of limited civil government. This acceptance of ecclesiastical pluralism within the judicial framework of confessional Trinitarianism then led to the public's naive acceptance of a radically different doctrine, the religious pluralism of a nation's moral and judicial foundations. This same confusion of concepts, judicial blindness, is the foundation of modern Christian political pluralism. It was Roger Williams' concept. This distinction was not clearly understood by most Christian voters in 1788 when they voted for or against ratification. Most of them simply assumed that Trinitarianism was socially normative in America and also that it would probably continue to be normative. The distinction between confessional pluralism and ecclesiastical pluralism under a common Trinitarian confession was understood and well understood by the intellectual leaders of the Constitutional Convention, as we shall see. Thus, church historian Sidney Mead has a valid point, quote, The struggles for religious freedom during the last quarter of the 18th century provided the kind of practical issue on which rationalists and sectarian pietists could and did unite. And despite of underlying theological differences in opposition to right-wing traditionalists, end quote. This was the political triumph of deism and Unitarianism over Christianity. In the second half of the 20th century, this became the political triumph of atheism over all forms of rival public religious expression. Deism, Unitarianism, and atheism achieved this political victory without ever having been more than a tiny minority of faiths in the United States. They scored their initial victories in the 18th century because the vast majority of Christians defaulted. Christians imported an alien faith into church, society, and state throughout the 18th century. They did this in the name of Christianity. Newton was the intellectual wedge. A century later, Darwin completed the conquest. The Appeal to God John Witherspoon adopted a compact theory of the state, following Locke. He accepted as historically valid the legal fiction of the existence of an original state of nature. Russell Kirk may be correct that Hamilton and Madison, in devising their political theories, were disciples of Scottish skeptic David Hume rather than Locke. Douglas Adair agrees. If this was the case, then this fact has important implications for political theory. To invoke Hume is also to call into question every appeal to natural rights. Hume dismissed Locke's natural rights theory and natural law theory as emphatically as he dismissed the concept of physical cause and effect. Madison's political theory has also been attributed to his reading of the ancient classics, especially Thucydides. This only extends the problem. On what judicial basis was the Constitution to be made legitimate? The framers appealed to the will of the people. But could this be considered both necessary and sufficient in late 18th century American life? Would there not also have to be an appeal to God? There was no escape. There had to be an appeal to God. This was what Hume sensed, and he forthrightly rejected all traces of theism in his political theory. Locke had known better. At the end of his second treatise, he invoked the name of God. He did so when he raised the question of sanctions. We can see here his attempted fusion between Christianity and natural law theory. 
It was an attempted fusion that has dominated Christian political theory down to our own era. He raised the question of the right of political rebellion, the dissolution of the civil compact. Quote, Here, it is like the common question will be made. Who is to judge whether the prince or legislative act contrary to their trust? This perhaps ill-affected and facetious man may spread among the people when the prince only makes use of his due prerogative. To this I reply, the people shall be judge. But further, this question, who shall be the judge, cannot mean that there is no judge at all. For where there is no judicature on earth to decide controversies among men, God in heaven is judge. He alone, it is true, is judge of the right. But every man is judge for himself, as in all other cases. So in this, whether another has put himself into a state of war with him, and whether he should appeal to the supreme judge, as Jephthah did. End quote. So there was some degree of transcendence in Locke's system. But he invoked the name of an undefined God rather than an earthly hierarchy and formal covenant with a specific God. He placed man as a sovereign agent acting directly under God. There is no hierarchical chain of command, no hierarchy of temporal appeal, no doctrine of defined representation in Locke's concept, a convenient theoretical backdrop of a theocratic government. How is God to enforce his transcendent covenant in the midst of history? directly or mediatorially through specific judicial institutions? That was the question Locke needed to answer. He did not even attempt to do so. Almost a century later, Rousseau's concept of political legitimacy was strictly imminent. In his system, there is no transcendent sovereign who enforces the terms of his covenants in history. Rousseau's sovereign is imminent, humanity. The political hierarchy is strictly political, all other loyalties are to be excluded, which is the heart of his totalitarianism. The Constitution follows Rousseau, civil laws as the product of exclusively human deliberation. The sanctions are exclusively historical, so the oath acknowledges only authority, only the authority of the document, and by implication, the amorphous sovereign people. Finally, succession is a matter of formal alterations of the civil co contract. Everything civil is self-consciously immunitized, i.e., the transcendent has been entirely removed. Then came Darwinism. The transcendent was erased from the concept of scientific cause and effect. God, the creator, sustainer, and judge was shoved unceremoniously out of the cosmos. The Darwinian worldview rapidly swept the field of law as surely as it swept every other academic field. This took less than a generation process philosophy fused with the democratic theory to produce a concept of law that is completely divorced from the transcendent. The judicial result can be found in Oliver Wendell Holmes' The Common Law, 1881, a defense of unrestricted judicial sovereignty, but all in the name of the evolving preferences of the judges and the electorate. Evolutionism from Witherspoon to Holmes The element of evolutionism was inherent in Scottish Enlightenment theory. The empiricism of Scottish common-sense realism was inherently evolutionary. There is a connection between the judicial theory of Scottish empiricism and post-Darwinian theories of justice. Holmes announced, quote, The life of the law has not been logic, it has been experience, end quote. Over a century later, Witherspoon had taught Madison and his other students that philosophers could not agree on the answer to the question, quote, What distinguishes man from animals, end quote. The philosophers, Witherspoon said, had wanted to find one incommunicable characteristic in man, but they could not find one. Reason, memory, laughter, religion, and a sense of ridicule. Witherspoon was not sure what the difference between man and beast is. 
he appealed to, quote, the beauty of his form, which the poet takes note of, end quote. An argument that no longer carries any weight in a world of relativism, especially atheistic relativism. He listed, quote, the knowledge of God and a future state, end quote, another dead argument in the eyes of the secular humanist. This line of reasoning was philosophically convenient in the 18th century. It is no longer even remotely convenient. The framers also could have appealed to this eschatological aspect of church teaching in their quest for public support of the national government. But in Article 6, Clause 3, removed the idea as a covenantally serious factor. The civil oath of the nation was severed from any conception of God's sanctions in eternity. In fact, Witherspoon could not, given his empiricism, locate a fixed, reliably incommunicable attribute in man that is acknowledged by autonomous man's philosophy. This was the unmistakable message of his lectures on moral philosophy. He appealed to an undefined virtue, but so did the deists and Unitarians. So had the Renaissance atheists and Renaissance magicians. Witherspoon, like all other 18th century Protestant moral philosophers, refused to appeal to biblical law as the foundation of conscience. They wanted something else to serve as the authoritative guide to understand God's will. The result of the whole is that we ought to take the role of duty from conscience, enlightened by reason, experience, and every way by which we can be supposed to learn the will of our maker, and by intention in creating us such as we are. And we ought to believe that at that it is as deeply founded as the nature of God himself, being a transcript of his moral excellence, and that it is pro- productive of the greatest good. End quote. But without the biblical doctrine of creation and the doctrine of man as the image of God, there is no incommunicable attribute in man to separate him from the animals. When Darwin destroyed both the historic and biological barriers between man and animal, the restrained evolutionism of Locke and his successors in Scotland was transformed into the modern version. Only biblical covenantalism can successfully negate evolutionism and its ethics of temporary power. It was biblical covenantalism that the framers self-consciously abandoned. An atheistic covenant. There is no escape from this conclusion. The United States Constitution is an atheistic, humanistic covenant. The law governing the public oath of office reveals this. Unfortunately, this oath is rarely discussed. Christians who do not analyze social and political institutions in terms of the biblical covenant model are not sufficiently alert to this crucial but neglected section of the Constitution. The Constitution is not a Christian covenantal document. It is a secular humanist covenantal document. While there have been many attempts over the years by Christians to evade this conclusion, they have all been unsupported with primary source documents. These attempts have also been obscurely argued that the word Lord appears in Article 9, the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1187, is not what I would call a persuasive argument for its Christian character. It has taken the Civil War, the 14th Amendment, and Supreme Court decisions beginning around 1960 to make the Constitution's humanistic foundation obvious to everyone except a handful of Christian scholars, most of whom were not trained as historians. The only people who have been deceived by these interpretations are evangelical Christians. They, like their teachers, are the victims of two centuries of Whig propaganda and two millennia of natural law theory. I realize that I am breaking with the fundamental thesis of the Rush Dooney Hall Slater Whitehead Titus interpretation of American constitutional history. I am also breaking with C. Craig Singer's thesis of the Deist Declaration of Independence and the idea of the Constitution as somewhat more Christian, somewhat more conservative, 
Singer was categorically incorrect when he wrote that the basic philosophies of the two documents were not compatible. Both documents were humanistic. Both were cut from the same covenantal cloth. If anything, the declaration was more Christian. Congress added two extra references to God. Of course, that God was the undefined God of common civil ceremonies of the era, or perhaps more to the point, common Masonic ceremonies. While Harold O.J. Brown does not pursue the matter, he has put his finger on the problem. Quote, America's symbolism is not really theism at all, even of an Old Testament variety. The seeing eye is sometimes found in Christian art, but on the great seal of the United States, it, like the pyramid, reflects the vague, great architect deism of American Freemasonry rather than faith in the personal God of Christianity, end quote. That Brown should appeal to the reverse of the great seal, the all-seeing eye in the pyramid, is significant, although even Brown is unaware of just how significant. The Congress on July 4th appointed a committee to recommend designs for a seal of the United States. The committee was made up of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and Benjamin Franklin. The, re- the obverse front of the great seal is the eagle. The reverse of the great seal is the all-seeing eye above a pyramid, a familiar Masonic symbol. There is an oddity here, one which is seldom mentioned. There is no reverse side of a corporate seal. A seal is used to produce an impression. It is either a one-piece seal for impressing wax or a convex and concave matching pair for impressing a piece of paper. This reverse seal was ignored by the government for a century and a half until Henry A. Wallace, Franklin Franklin Roosevelt's politically radical Secretary of Agriculture and resident resident occult mystic, persuaded the Secretary of the Treasury to restore it to public view by placing it on the back of the $1 bill, the most common currency unit. This was done in 1935 and remains with us still. Men need symbolic representations of ultimate sovereignty. America returned symbolically in the 20th century to two forgotten symbols of the original but short-lived national halfway covenant era, symbols that invoke the god of Freemasonry. The eagle is no longer emotionally sufficient in a judicially secular age, but the lawyer's impersonal constitutional covenant provides no symbol that appeals to men's longing for cosmic personalism. The all-seeing eye does. Deism and Unitarianism The Declaration of Independence is a deistic document. Three of the five-men committee that was responsible for writing it were theological Unitarians, Jefferson, Franklin, and John Adams. Three were Masons, Sherman, maybe, Livingston, and Franklin. As David Hawke writes of Adams, he verged on deism in religion and found it no easier than Jefferson to admit his waywardness publicly. He respected the findings of natural philosophy and was inclined to extend those findings into the social and political world. He believed that natural law resembled the axioms of mathematics, self-evident principles that every man must assent to as soon as proposed. In their old age, Adams and Jefferson renewed their friendship in a long correspondence that lasted for more than a decade. Their letters revealed that they were almost totally agreed on religion. They hated Christianity, especially Calvinism. In Jefferson's April 11, 1823 letter to Adams, he announced that if anyone ever worshipped a false god, Calvin did. Calvin's religion, he said, was demonianism, meaning blasphemy. He knew that Adams was already in basic agreement with him in these opinions. After surveying their letters, Cushing Stoke concludes, quote, Whatever their political differences, Jefferson and Adams were virtually at one in their religion, end quote. Stroud identifies the creed of this religion, Unitarianism. Jefferson was systematic in his hatred of Trinitarian Christianity. 
In his old age, he sent a letter to James Smith, which he stressed was confidential, in which he expressed confidence that, quote, the present generation will see Unitarianism become the general religion of the United States, end quote. In a letter to Benjamin Waterhouse that same year, he wrote, quote, I trust that there is not a young man now living in the United States who will not die uni- a Unitarian, end quote. The Bible is just another history book, he wrote to Peter Carr. Read the Bible, then as you would read Livy or Tacitus. End quote. As for Adams, he was buried in a crypt at the United First Parish Church, Unitarian, in Quincy, Massachusetts. What, then, becomes of widespread belief in the supernatural sanctions preached by organized religion that the framers hoped would be placed in the service of society as a non-political means of securing social stability and personal generosity to the poor? As Pangle asks, quote, Can belief in immortality of the soul or in providential interventions in this life be divorced from belief in miracles? And can one easily confine theological disputation once one encourages the belief in miracles? We search in vain for answers in Jefferson's writings, public or private, end quote. The same question must be posed regarding the other framers' views, and the same silence is ominous. Some of them based their hopes of social stability on a religion they had personally rejected. They drew large drafts on a Trinitarian cultural bank account into which they had made few deposits in their lifetime. The Declaration of Independence The Declaration of Independence announced the creation of a new nation in 1776. The day it was approved, July 4, 1776, the Congress authorized a committee to create a nation seal. A seal is an aspect of incorporation, just as baptism is. This is why we know the Declaration was an incorporating document. The bylaws of the nation were agreed to in November of 1777, but they were not ratified until 1781, the Articles of Confederation. What very few people are ever told today is that this was not the full name of the Articles. The document was called, quote, Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union Between the States, end quote. If then listed the 13, it then listed the 13 states by name. The words Perpetual Union reveal the nature of the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and the call for state-ratifying conventions, an initially illegal revocation of the original bylaws of the nation, which was to have been a perpetual union. This original union was legally dissolved in 1788 by the ratification of the Constitution. A new deity was identified, we the people. The old deity of the Declaration, the undefined God of nature, was not mentioned in the Constitution. This is why the framers made no mention of the Declaration. It was this halfway covenant that was self-consciously being replaced. But the framers knew that the new nation would not need symbolic continuity to support the judicial discontinuity. First, the article's official designation of the Confederation as the United States was retained in the new bylaws in order to provide the illusion of judicial continuity. We, the people of the United States, the same public relations strategy was used in 1945 when the name United Nations, which had been used to designate the Allied forces during World War II, was appropriated by the international organization known thereafter as the United Nations. Second, they appropriated the other visible token of national continuity, the Great Seal. An analogous revolution can be seen in the 20th century American churches. The apostates who control today's mainline churches have scrapped the creeds of the churches, but they still administer the sacraments. The churches have reduced the procedural signs of the original covenant oath to more mere formalities, yet these formalities still convey a sense of legitimacy and continuity. They are the signs of continuity with the past, despite the fact that the church covenant has been broken, as the revisions of the creeds reveal. 
denomination by denomination, but especially the Presbyterians, who have been the most creedal church of all, with the most rigorous creed. Two questions need to be answered. First, if the foundational documents of the American Civil Covenant are deistic and humanistic, then why did Bible-believing Christians agree to define the Revolutionary War as Jefferson did in the Declaration of Independence? Secondly, why did Christians ratify the Constitution? To answer the first question, we need to recognize that the Declaration was never directly ratified by voters. They ratified it only representatively through the official sent to Congress by state revolutionary legislatures. Nobody in the, in the colonial public paid much attention to the Declaration. It was not ratified by anyone outside the Assembly in 1776. It was signed in August. The names of the signers were not released until January of 1777. The Declaration was primarily a foreign policy document aimed at France and Europe, although it was designed to unify those at home. It expressed only commonplace sentiments in America. It did not become a well-known document of the history of the Revolution until decades later. It had not even been a part of the 4th of July ceremonies in the decade of the 1790s. Until the presidential election of 1796, when John Adams ran against Thomas Jefferson, the public had barely heard of the Declaration. Jefferson's supporters resurrected it as a symbol of their candidate's importance, much to the displeasure of Adams, who was one of the five men on the committee that was responsible for drafting it. The Federalist Party did its best to de-emphasize Jefferson's part in the Declaration's drafting, but Adams could hardly deny that the language and concepts were mostly Jefferson's. John Witherspoon signed the Declaration and served in the wartime Congress. He therefore served as the new nation's baptizing agent for the American Whig churches. This was the public anointing that was covenantally needed in all Christian nations prior to the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. This was, in short, the sanctioning of the new Revolutionary Constitutional Order of 1776. This is why Witherspoon was so important in American history, and why the Whig churches ever since have praised his actions and designated him as the ecclesiastical figure in the Revolutionary War era, which he undoubtedly was, but not for the reasons listed today. He was not merely a political representative who happened to be an ordained Presbyterian minister. He was, in effect, the covenantal representative agent of the Whig Patriot churches. The British recognized him as such, which is why the military immediately bayoneted the man they believed to be Witherspoon. Witherspoon was crucial to, American, to the American Revolution because of his representing office. Protestant churches saw him as their man in Philadelphia. We still need to deal with the second question, ratification. I have already mentioned the confusion in the minds of the voters regarding confessional pluralism versus ecclesiastical pluralism under a Trinitarian oath. I consider this question in greater detail in chapter 4. Before we get to that question, however, we need to consider some neglected facts regarding the actual writing of the Constitution, which I cover in chapter 3. Conclusion The two features of the U.S. Constitution mark it unmistakably as a humanistic covenant. The preamble and the religious test oaths clause of Article 6, the famous phrase of Jefferson's regarding, quote, a wall of separation between church and state, in his 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptists, is not in the Constitution in this familiar form, but is nonetheless in the Constitution judicially. While the preamble has received considerable attention, Article 6, Clause 3, has been almost universally ignored. Despite the silence of the commentators and historians, there is no single covenantal cause of the suppression of Christianity in America, and therefore in the modern world, that has had a greater impact than the test oath clause. 
It is this clause that established judicially the anti-Christian nature of the constitutional experiment. While the phrase, we the people, is viewed by some constitutional scholars as having no legal impact, the test oath clause is so sacrosanct that it receives little attention. Its legitimacy, its normality, is assumed by everyone who reads it. This was generally the case in 1788, too. This fact testifies to the impact of natural law philosophy in the history of Christendom. Ideas do have consequences, in this case, disastrous consequences, but few people recognize the cause of the disasters. Like the Israelites in Egypt, Christians would rather serve as slaves in the household of God's enemies than serve those who profess biblical religion. The politics of American Christian envy begins with Article 6, Clause 3. I argued at the beginning of this chapter that, quote, the oath has continuing continuity over generations, so do its stipulations. Only the sovereign who establishes the oath can change the stipulations or the oath. The ability to change the stipulations or the oath is therefore a mark of ultimate sovereignty, end quote. The Constitution can legally be amended. Doesn't this indicate that the nation's sovereign is the electorate rather than God? This is exactly what the amending process indicates under the present Constitution. This is why the Constitution is a broken covenant. It was a break with God's civil covenants, which had been in force in a dozen in a dozen states in 1776, which had not been replaced by the halfway covenant of the Articles of Confederation. The idea that the Constitution is a Christian document is a myth promoted by Whigs, their spiritual heirs, and their original political victims, the Christians. The Whigs' influence faded with the triumph of Darwinianism, which rendered the Newtonian worldview intellectually obsolete with respect to the impersonal origin and purposeless evolution of the cosmos. In a world devoid of both cosmic purpose and a God who brings judgment, there are neither natural rights nor natural laws of society. Everything is evolving, only survival matters. Today, the related concepts of natural rights and natural law, order that upholds natural rights, are promoted mainly by Christians who have not yet made their peace with Darwinianism's impersonal universe, although most of them have signed a temporary ceasefire. The Whig worldview was never compatible with Christian orthodoxy, but at least its political success did, for a time, restrain the expansion of the state. But with the defeat of Whiggery by Darwinism, American Christians have been left politically high and dry. They still cling to Whiggery and Whiggery's once successful defense of the Constitution. This does them little good. Rammed by the Darwin, the good ship Whig has a gaping hole in its hull. Like the Titanic, its demise is sure. It is time for Christians to abandon ship. Quote by Gary Wills, 1984. At some point, George Washington surely learned, what he might have suspected anyway, that Madison planned to arrive in Philadelphia with a plan that moved the adoption of a new government to be adopted by state conventions, not the legislatures. Once that motion was taken up, every delegate would be at odds with his instructions to amend within the guidelines of the articles, and if that step were made known to the public, the delegates would be able to take no others. The debate would be less among themselves than with their foes in public at home in their state legislatures or in the federal Congress. All the procedural fights that did follow on the eventual publication of the draft would have been made conducted simultaneously with the debates on further changes to be made. So the pledge of secrecy was made and enforced by Washington, and the embarrassing record of the convention's procedures was entrusted at, at the final session to Washington, who took it to Mount Vernon, where few would dare to challenge him for its surrender. 
As it has often been noted, if that record had come to light at the time of the ratification debates, the Constitution would have never passed. Madison's original plan, with a stronger central government able to, to veto state laws and a stronger veto on congressional legislation, would have confirmed the worst fears of the anti-federalists. End quote. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.